Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today, we'll be talking about boldness. But before we get into that, I just once again wanted to say thank you to those who we interviewed for the, sh- the last couple of shows. The interviews were very fun. I enjoyed getting to travel and speak with you all. I hope that uh, you are well and that you continue in your adventures uh, and, and that we meet up soon because those were excellent conversations. And that's that's one of the nice things about this job is that I get to go up and have amazing conversations with people that I wouldn't normally have. You know, uh, Mickey's a really cool guy, for instance, but I don't see myself just coming in out of the blue and being like, hey, Mickey, let's talk about fighting, about your views on such things. It's not something that just kind of comes up in casual conversation, typically. But with having microphone in hand, you know, going up and saying, hey, I'd love to interview you for the show, you can have all sorts of conversations with folks. Fantastic conversations, which are the ones I've been having. So thank you so much to those who have been receptive to, to being on the show. I very much enjoy speaking about this sort of thing, and I enjoy speaking about it with you. And in that same regard, we need to give a thanks to our patrons once again. They have been the silent heroes of this show. I haven't spoken of them a whole lot, as much as I should, I'm sure. But I just wanted to to read their names off again, because without them, the last two episodes would not have been possible. Without them, that trip to Tennessee just wouldn't have been feasible financially for us. But because of your support, because of your charity with the show, and, and the, the level of dedication to our values and to, our, the, the, to the spread of our ideas, I just have to say thank you. Thank you so much once again. So those patrons are Grizz, Dennis, Lear, Carly, Shelby, and Juniper, who you've heard several times on the show as well. So thank you all once again. That trip to Beltane was fantastic and a huge learning experience. Uh, I mean, as was obvious, we're going to get better at recording, I promise. Uh, lots of notes were taken. Let's just let's just put it that way. So moving on to some, some other sorts of things before we get into the idea of boldness. Uh, I want to talk about the Ukraine a little bit, as we've been watching this this exercise, this military idea play out in front of us in real lives, in a real humanitarian crisis. And it does make it difficult to study. You know, it, it's relatively easy to look back 200 years ago and be able to think around the suffering of the people we're speaking of, because it was so long ago and it, the experiences they're having are so alien. But today... You know, studying the Ukraine, it's totally different, totally different, uh, because these are real people. 
real people who are suffering, real people who are having their lives uprooted because of this conflict. And so it is difficult to remain academic at these times. And I don't think we should <laughs> as well. Like there needs to be some sort of reaction uh, to this. But that's this is not the show where we do it. I'm just saying that, you know, having a completely cold approach to this is, you know, it's not really possible. Um, but what we've been seeing is the escalation, right? One of the things that Clausewitz has spoken of many times is this idea that we have to be prepared for our opponent to escalate the situation, to make it, to, to try to meet us on higher terms. You know, the saying, you know, if you build a 10 foot wall, they'll build a 12 foot ladder, right? The same idea here, build armor that is impenetrable to a lance and they're going to figure out some sort of projectile vice to use against it. So this escalation is, is almost inevitable and it's sad how predictable it is. And again, how innocent people get caught in the crossfire, you know, for instance, the whole West, you know, has been sending in weapons of various degrees, getting, getting more and more complicated getting more and more advanced. And as a result of this, Russia has been striking outside of the Donbass region as well, going after towns that are cities that have been part, crucially part of this supply chain, part of this supply conduit. So cities that perhaps may not have been hit as hard are being hit in direct relation to be, because, you know, the, the actions that the United States and the other Western nations are taking. Not to say one is wrong or what, one is the other, it, it just is, which is kind of what's happening. And what this is doing is it's also crystallizing the rest of the world in a lot of ways. There's, of course, there's people who are still doing business. Italy, for instance, is still buying Russian oil. Uh, China has refused the embargo as well. Not the whole world is arrayed against Russia, but a good portion of the Western nations and certainly NATO. And this crystallization, NATO has been fighting amongst themselves for a long time. Anybody who's been up to date with the news will know that there's been all sorts of backbiting and name calling and, and just relative unease discontent within NATO. But boy, howdy, does that just evaporate once that external enemy presents itself? Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, you, you have the, the quarreling that's just sort of died down quite a bit. There's, I mean, there's still some, we're talking about human institutions and states that aren't necessarily pals, but they're supporting one another. And there's been, uh, there's been irony to this, you know, part of the reason that the invasion of the Ukraine was launched was because of the threat that, that were, was posed by the NATO membership and the missiles being so close, right? That was one of the reasons that was cited was that there would be weapons, long-range weapons that would be within range because of, you know, the proximity. And the irony is that they now have those, those missiles there. <laughs> They've been sent in as a response uh, to, the, uh, to the Russian activities. So in a way, you know, because Putin went in to, to prevent something like this, he actually brought it about faster in the long run, which I find ironic. The other thing that I think is, is hilarious in this situation is that Sweden, for instance, has been neutral since the Napoleonic Wars. They have not participated in the other wars. And they have maintained that there's been a point of pride as I'm sure we have some Swedish listeners. I'm sure y'all are aware of this, the, the long history of neutrality, but they, they are now petitioning for NATO membership. Finland is petitioning for NATO mem membership. Remember that Finland was, was invaded very fast during the second world war because it, because of its proximity to the capital, because of its proximity and importance, you know, that was the reason it was cited. And now they're also looking at membership. 
in response to what Putin is doing. So I, I find that extremely amusing, personally. Not the fact, again, that people are being hurt, not the fact that lives are uprooted, not the fact that people are dying, but in a long-term political sense, Putin has shot himself in the foot. And what he's dealing with is much like what the United States dealt with in Afghanistan, much like you know the, the United States dealt with in Vietnam. All wars of occupation are that if the... If we think back to our Abu Bakr Naji book, you know, there are two things that will keep an insurgency going. The, the will, and the, like the, the will to fight of the people who are there, and external support. It's just not possible. Like, and, and in the Afghan war, there were all sorts of people secretly funneling money into the Taliban and other groups. And we all knew who they were, but it wasn't necessarily announced. That's part of the reason the Taliban were so strong was that they had this. Other nations, other countries covertly supporting them. It's not covert in the Ukraine. There's no secret supply of weapons going in there. It's being boldly announced, right? Everybody's saying that it's happening. So even that that's even more. That's not a slow trickle of arms in support. We're talking about whole militaries worth of equipment. If, if after this war, the Ukraine isn't a shining example of a, a, you know, a sterling military at the end of it, I'll be surprised with everything they're getting from this. So all of this, all of this is, is putting Putin in a very difficult place, I'm sure, militarily speaking. And as of the time of this recording, the world has not ended yet. And we're hoping it doesn't. Because then, how would we satisfy our curiosity of what happens next? Switching gears a little bit, and speaking of satisfying curiosity, um, I joined a league, I think I had mentioned that, uh, a local Warhammer 40k league, that I'm hoping, that it's like tournament prep. The idea is to have things be just as difficult, and on the same level, uh, points-wise, and the way terrain works, all that, as the, the big tournaments. You know, prepping us for, like, the Las Vegas Open, for instance. So, I've, I've been excited about it, but one of the things that I learned first going out there is that pride goeth, right? Because I had a little bit of hubris, I'll admit, coming into it. You know, I, I do very well in my group of friends. I'm not going to say that I am like an ace or whatever, but be, like the, the fights that I have with the folks that I normally game with have made me think that I'm a relatively good player. It made me think that I, you know, might be able to stand a chance on a national field. And it's nice every now and then to be checked. It's nice when reality reminds us that we have a long ways to go. Because entering into this league, I have gotten lit up in every game I've been in against these guys. Oh, it's crazy. You know, the first guy brought these Necrons. And was like I don't think anything in the list did less than like negative 5 AP. It was crazy just eating through my nights. I did not have the right models on the table, and so I tweaked my list again. Next fight was against the Custodes. Custodes are ridiculous. Oh, they're ridiculously good. There were a few things that went wrong in that one, too. Definitely went wrong. And so that made me tweak my list as well. So each of these has been a huge learning experience. I am actually delighted to be being beaten like this. Because it's letting me have an opportunity to learn again. It's showing me that the bar is higher. I've got some, something to work for. It's not just sitting around being like, you know, I think I'm good. But actually learning that, oh man, I have a long ways to go. And that's exciting to me. I, I don't know if the rest of you take to loss the same way that I do, but I, I, I do find it to be better than winning in a lot of ways. 
know, winning's fun. Don't get me wrong. Everybody wants to win. We're all trying to win. But in losing, we have the opportunity to learn far more. I mean, look at this book we're reading. Klaswitz was on the losing side of this conflict. He watched his army get beat. And so he was able to come to us with this perspective, able to share it with us. So I, I very much enjoy it. In fact, for the interview section, uh, section two, we're going to be speaking with Soren, uh, one of the guys who has been <laughs> bending me over his knee, as it were. And uh, we're going to kind of talk to him about these themes of boldness that we're going to discuss. Because I, I think now is going to be a good time, good as time as any, to shut my gob and move into the material where we will be discussing the themes of boldness. There is a saying that I'm sure that we've all heard. Fortune favors the bold. And this is often the case. The bold are the option makers, are the ones who will be able to get out there and do the thing, make the choices, and get ahead. Boldness is required for just about everything that we do in life if we wish to succeed. And, of course, nowhere more important than in military activity. Boldness itself stands opposed to foresight and prudence. These things are good of themselves, being able to see ahead, being able to kind of predict what is going to happen, and being able to apply just the right amount of pressure to it. But boldness, Clausewitz says, should not be restricted by theory. If we are bold, if we are pushing ahead, then the theory should not matter. This is where I'm going to pick a fight with a dead guy <laughs> almost immediately. Uh, because I find that theory is what shapes our ability to move forward without foresight, without prudence. We're not going to be doing like just and flailing blindly at whatever enemy we have. Uh, theory is important. Theory is important. And I think what he's saying here perhaps is that, you know, if there is a bold action to be taken, that it should not be restrained because it is against the theory. You know, for instance, Theory states that we should not charge an unbroken line of infantry. But perhaps there is a place, a, a time, a circumstance in which it would be a good idea to do so. In which case, boldness is called for. But the generality in which he speaks of it here makes me, makes me kind of question it. But we can also describe boldness as the rising of the human soul above formidable dangers. The ability for people to be able to carry on and have good morale, despite what's going on around them. And in actual warfare, I mean, this is huge. You know, if we're dealing with explosions going on all around us, people dying, there's a, there's a need to rise above these formidable dangers if one is going to succeed. A little bit less so in what we do, but still rather there. Uh, being on the field can be scary for a lot of folks who haven't been in a real fight before or this may be their first time doing a full-contact sport, it's scary being out there, especially against veterans who have been training a lot and who might be large and muscle-bound and well-practiced at hitting very hard. Boldness is called for. So if you're new on the field, for one thing, welcome. And for another thing, understand that fortune favors the bold. We cannot win if we do not try. And boldness is considered the noblest of the military virtues and applies to everyone. 
everyone of any rank or any job, boldness is a good thing, Klauswitz says. He's got some some kind of conditionals on that later on in the in the chapter. But I agree I largely would agree with him here for sure, and I think we all would. That boldness is required, again, for, for a lot of what we do. And like rising above fear is not from the absence of fear itself, but from boldness, right? We cannot rise above fear without this. So I'm going to start, you know, beating this dead horse. <laughs> next, next topic. He says, boldness is a creative power, especially against hesitation where the equilibrium is already lost. Hesitation is different than caution. Hesitation is not being able to make a right decision. Hesitation is being confused, is shirking away from what is required of us. And boldness needs to be creative in this thing. It needs, it needs to move the activity forward. And that is only possible if the spirit is able to rise above that hesitation to, I think in, in nowadays it's referred to as executive dysfunction. You know, this form of hesitation in life or in warfare can really muck us up. It can be really be something that stands in the way between us and success, us and a happy life. So if we can cultivate boldness, it can help us go forward. Now, cautious foresight is different than hesitation. If we understand what's happening and we're being cautious and, and perhaps we have a very small army or a, a not very well-equipped army, we're going against somebody much larger, just marching against them perhaps isn't the best idea. So cautious foresight can put boldness at a disadvantage. It's possible. Think of Aikido. It's a, it's a martial art that is designed to use your opponent's weight, their motion against them. It's a rather peaceful martial art as they go, but you see somebody get whipped around in the air and thrown in all different areas. And this comes from the cautious foresight. Again, Aikido is not an overly aggressive style. In fact, from what I understand, it's purely defensive. Now, Hapkido can hurt someone, but Aikido is a defensive style. And so this foresight, this training, that this cautious foresight allows them to take the rash boldness of an opponent and use it against them. So it can. Absolutely, there is a place where boldness can be at a disadvantage, but only if it does not come from a place of timidity. It can't be because a person does not want to act. Aikido does not work if a person is timid, if they are not willing to give themselves over to the art, to the action. It doesn't work. So there is still a, a level of boldness required here, isn't there? Like, even if we have this cautious foresight, we need to have the boldness to act when we need to act. To not let the foresight or the caution turn into hesitation. Because at that point, boldness overwhelms us. So if we are in a place that we, we cannot be as bold, or we need to be more cautious, remember to also be taunt and ready for action. Because boldness is largely a cultivated force. Some people have it naturally, but when you're dealing with a large group, an army, for instance, boldness is something that, that needs to be cultivated in a lot of cases. And it needs to be held in check like a spring ready for action. Not just all over the place. Boldness without focus is chaos. It's just pure chaos. Everybody all over the place, going willy-nilly, doing whatever. 
But if it's controlled, if we are able to keep it not like an explosion, but a laser with the same level of intensity, the same destructive force, but focused into a single beam, a single idea, a single force, which is the army to be used at the behest of the commander whenever they should need it. But the boldness being there makes it into a gun. The reason we can trust a firearm to work is because it's already primed and ready to go. We chamber a bullet, a bullet that has been made to do one thing. We cock back the action. And then when we're ready, we pull the trigger. And because the bullet is made well, hopefully the bullet is made well, and it's guided by the infrastructure provided by the rest of the firearm, we are able to hit our target very finely. And if we've got the aim for it, we're able to do exactly what we need to do. This does not work if our bullet is a dud, if we need to gently coax the bullet out of the barrel. It doesn't work. So the bullet, the army, needs to be ready to go. It needs to be a powder keg for sure, but a directed powder keg and something that is a, a useful weapon rather than a, a random destructive force. Because again, boldness can be creative, but it needs to be focused. Now, there's a saying in French that he mentions, and I'm going to try not to butcher it too badly, but it says, tell brie en seconde, qui s'éclipse en première. I'm sorry, so sorry to our French listeners, but the rough translation is, he who shines in the second rank is also eclipsed in the first. So there is a level of boldness that is required at each level, right? Everybody needs it, as Clausewitz says. It's the noblest of military virtues. Everybody should possess boldness. But it looks a little different as we move up the hierarchy. The higher we go in rank, the more that boldness has to be tempered by a reflective mind. Somebody who is able to look at the situation and be a bit more, more thoughtful about it. This becomes more and more and more important as you move up, I say, in, in, in the rank. And there are people who shine in various levels who would not shine at a higher place. We all think that moving up the ladder is the best thing, right? It's one of the things that, especially here in America, we've been taught to ever strive for higher rank, for higher position. But what if a person is very good where they are? And if to move ahead would, would make them inefficient at best. I, you, you've absolutely seen this, I'm sure, in your workplaces where people are promoted simply because they've been there the longest and they don't necessarily have the skill sets to do what they need to do at the higher level. And, and business or production slows down because a person who was quite effective at what they were already doing is now in a position where they're not able to use those skills, not able to capitalize upon their strengths. And so yes, he who shines in the second rank may be eclipsed in the first. Not all of us are meant to move up the chain. Not all of us are meant to be generals, but all of us are meant to be bold. And this boldness at the lower ranks, as Clausewitz thinks, must develop itself into a form of self-sacrifice. Right? So it has the least amount of reflective mind and moving forward boldly to capture whatever position or to go against whatever enemy. The soldier, the frontline soldier, has a different requirement of boldness than a general does. The soldier needs to be willing to sacrifice themselves. 
needs to put the, the good of their platoon uh, uh, before themselves. Needs to move in a way that sacrifices the individuality and subsumes the will to the unit. These things, this boldness, is required of linemen, right? But as we move up, in the ranks, this level of self-sacrifice becomes less and less and less about sacrificing oneself in order to achieve an objective and the preservation of one's people, right? If we know that our gun is primed and loaded and ready to go, well, we only have so many bullets, right? We only have so many, so many in our clip or so many that we can put into our clip. And so because we are not the bullet, we are the one firing the bullet, there's a different level of boldness required for us. There needs to be a willingness to use the weapon, to use the army. But we are trying to deal not only with exploding forward and taking our hill, hitting our target, but also to manage the number of bullets. We only have so many. It's not like we have an infinite supply. This isn't like some video games where it's like, one, where do they keep the bullets? Two, how do they keep getting new ones? It's a video game. Whatever. But in real life, we have a finite supply of material, of men. And so because of this, the higher ranks need to be thinking more of that. We've absolutely seen wars. We've absolutely seen battles where the military commanders toward the top had the wrong sort of boldness. Marched their troops into death's maw over and over and over again Burnside without regard to their safety. And he's another one of those. Again, when they made him the, the like, like a, a general general, that's where things started to go poorly. When he was in the lower ranks, from what I understand, he was rather effective. Somewhat charismatic of a dude, able to to definitely engage with people. He seemed to be an excellent ambassador to the troops. It was only when he was promoted to where he actually had responsibility over lives that I started to take issue with the man and his ridiculous mustache. Because he shined in the second and he was eclipsed in the first and his boldness was wrong. It was ill-placed. The willingness to sacrifice so many to accomplish such a small objective and an objective that was hopeless. And everybody told him so. Hooker told him so. Chamberlain told him so. Everybody who would listen to, who he would listen to, told him so. He didn't care. He was bold in this particular case. So again, as we move up, as we move up in the ranks, it is necessary for us to temper that boldness with reflection. To see where the aim is best put. Where the, where the gun is best pointed. So that we do pull that trigger. That spring ready for action. It can be accurate and efficient is what we're going for. But again, boldness is still required. There still has to be a willingness to use the weapon, to use the army. And this necessity that we're talking about that is required here, the, the willingness to use it is usually from necessity. A person doesn't just go around with a firearm, hopefully. We don't want to talk about current events, but... They're usually, when we're dealing with an army, there's a reason for it. There's a necessity here that requires boldness, whether it's an attack or a defense, is part of where it comes from. And there's different levels, different degrees of intensity, right, when it comes to boldness. 
There's a certain level of desperation that was taken when you deal with some of the, the hill fighting that was done in the Korean War. It was just a back and forth, back and forth over one hill. And the intensity required there with the artillery barrages and, and everything going on, that had a different requirement of boldness than other battles in, in less desperate situations. So resolution is necessary. If we're pursuing our goals, despite this danger, being bold here, we are being resolute. And while they are very much related, boldness and, and resolution, they are slightly different, especially when Clausewitz is coming to define them. And if we are, let's imagine a ravine, right? A large chasm. We're going to leap this chasm. Now, what's the reason for it? If we're sitting there trying to impress someone, you know, somebody that we're interested in or whatever, to leap that ravine, to show off, well, that's boldness, right? To jump off the cliff to impress somebody into the water below, well, that is boldness. Or even just cliff jumping in, in general. Boldness. Racing a car. Boldness. Now, when we do these things out of necessity, when we're leaping the ravine to get away from something, jumping off the cliff because we need to, driving the car to actually get away. Well, this takes resolution. This takes that focus, that discipline we were talking about. But as we've said before, this necessity can vary by degrees. And the further it is from our point of action, where things are taking place, the greater number of relations intervening which the mind has to traverse. Remember that we were talking about this reflective mind being required at higher stations that transition from self-sacrifice to preservation of numbers, that, that ranking up. So there's, there's a, uh, a distance, right, as we rank up. And there's going to be a lot more things that we need to think about the higher we go in those ranks. The person fighting over the hill, the grunts, as it were, they need to think about one thing, staying alive, killing the enemy. Pretty darn simple. I mean, simple but not easy. Remember that that's one of the things we've talked about. But when we move up to a battalion level, we're dealing with a, a smaller front. Well, there's a bunch of other relations that need to be considered. A lot more battlefield intelligence that needs to be analyzed. Moving up to the, you know, especially to the general staff, to the, you know, the chief of staff level. Well, there's a lot to be considered. We're not dealing with just one hill, one small action. We're dealing with a large front. It's not just little round top. It's the entire line in Gettysburg. So because of this, because we have to, to traverse, like he says, all these different ideas, all these different things that press in on the situation and on the decision, well, this does take that reflective mind. Because without it, without considering all of these things, without considering the way the various forces are acting upon the situation, we're just Burnside, randomly throwing people up a hill over, over several miles, over, I'm sorry, over about a mile, open ground, because these relations were not taken into account. The fact that there were other places that could have been staged as an attacking point, and not that ridiculous location that was chosen. His boldness was misplaced, and he didn't have the reflective mind that Lee did. Well, that was the thing. Like, Lee was outsmarting people left and right, and he was bold. He had to be. Because he had a smaller army that was not as well equipped. He didn't have the supply lines. Or just the industrial might 
that the North had. So to win, Lee had to be bold, but he had to be smart. He had to have a reflective mind. He had to try to outthink his opponent, not just beat them bloody. And he managed to. Now some people made it easy, like Burnside, not a military genius. But this necessity that he had, he was able to keep it together. He was able to be resolute in the face of these dangers. And eventually, I mean, he was, he was beaten. Grant's uh, attrition was a very effective strategy. And of course, uh, gutting the South's ability to resupply, that certainly had an effect as well. But this necessity drove Lee to be a very good commander, one of the better commanders that that conflict saw. Now, when we're dealing with boldness, we had said before that a lot of times boldness is a force that needs to be cultivated when we're dealing with larger masses. But sometimes boldness is a force all unto itself. Sometimes a culture itself encourages boldness. There are certain cultures that are more warrior cultures. Where they just sort of, like, let's think about Mongolian culture. There was a certain hardness to it. There were certain requirements of manhood within within the culture that bred very good warriors. And also because they were raised on horseback. You had people who would, like, just lived around horses, on horses. Everything was that life. And hunting. They knew. They were trained in combat from a very from a very early age. So the forces of the Mongol hordes, as it were, very good and very prone to it culturally. Not a whole lot of, of advanced training that needs to go into in, imbuing boldness to that culture. And, and there are many warlike cultures and have been many warlike cultures throughout the history of the world. I'm sure we can think of several just sitting here. But the majority of cultures are not. Most cultures try to go for some sort of peace. Medical advancements, scientific advancements, literature, things that make people quote-unquote soft. Remember that we had talked about how, at least in my opinion, any given Taliban soldier is going to be quote-unquote tougher in a lot of ways than your given American soldier. Not because of training, not because of equipment, but because of the hardships in which they endure their life. Most Americans just do not. Whereas most of the folks who were in the Taliban, I'm sure, lived hard lives, knew how to experience that hardship in their bones. They had never known anything else. We have our televisions, our podcasts, our fast food, our fast cars, and this makes us soft. And so when we, when Americans need to go to war, in most cases, we need to be conditioned to be bold. There are certainly elements. I mean, I, I live here in Montana, and I know people who are absolutely gung-ho, did not need any <laughs> instruction in boldness to go into the military. But I, I speak generally. The majority of the people that I've seen who go into the military need to be taught boldness. I wonder if that is true in countries where there is a more hard life led. Now, discipline is also something that needs to be encouraged. And discipline is something that the United States military does well. I haven't been in the Taliban army, so I, I don't really know what goes on there. But from what I've seen in terms of manner of dress and the way that they conduct themselves militarily, there isn't the same cohesiveness or discipline. But there's certainly boldness. So culture is different. This, this, this cultural conditioning affects us all, especially as we're all moving into a more posh age where creature comforts 
and helping objects for the necessities of life, like stoves for cooking, washing machines for washing, all these things that make our lives much easier, make us all less and less likely to want war, to be conditioned towards war. So when we have to be, we have to be trained to do so. I mean, basic training is no cakewalk. And they try to prepare you for the stresses of combat and for the boldness that is required there. And a lot of time it takes. Because again, it's an effective training, but it needs to be conditioned in, is what we're saying. Now, ideally, boldness, as we've been saying, should be very powerful, but it also needs to be tempered by intelligence. It's really no good unless we know how to direct it. There are ways of firing, I'm just going to be using this analogy because he was the one talking about, you know, being taught and ready for action. And that makes me think of, you know, a firearm. And if we're thinking about it, there are ways of holding that firearm when we're tempered by intelligence and by training that are far more effective. And most people will, will know it. You hold it in your, in your trigger hand and then you rest your trigger hand in the palm of your other hand. Keep your elbows bent. Squeeze, don't pull. These are all lessons that come with learning, come with the intelligence. Whereas, you know, you've absolutely, usually in movies, when people are firing randomly and there's no real discipline, they're not using a, a, an aiming mechanism, maybe they have the, the weapon tilted to the side. And so they may be bold, but it's not tempered. And so the boldness needs to be tempered, even at these lower levels. We're not talking just like random, ha orcs. Or the legions of corn screaming across the field. Now, when we're looking at boldness, too much or too little can take away our ability to actually make a decision. So there is such a thing as too much, but it's only when it starts to interfere with our actual ability to perform on the field. Of course, we've talked about too little boldness leads to hesitation, leads to the inability to make a decision, inability to act, which is lethal in a combat situation. Too much boldness takes away our ability to make a decision because we are on tilt, right? We're not really thinking. And so without thinking, we're just acting. And it's not really making a decision. We're just sort of reacting to what we see. And that may be good. That may be bad. But it doesn't change the fact that it has taken away our ability to make a rational decision. So boldness needs to be kept right in that laser zone, right? That, that focused place where it can do the most good. And boldness can be innate. It can be something that comes with the territory. Something, again, that was either bred into us by our culture, by our families, by our experiences in life, that make us bold. Or it can be learned, something that's taught in basic training or in some sort of internship, right? You know, there's all sorts of people that go into business and they're not, they don't have the boldness to really be successful there. But perhaps they intern, perhaps they get a mentor, who teaches them boldness in business. As we've seen here, boldness is required and a boon at all levels. It stands opposite of foresight and prudence, which like manifest themselves as hesitation. And boldness is the noblest of military virtue and needs to be able to overcome this. Cautious foresight is one thing, but hesitation is lethal, especially when your opponent is bold. And so we can't come from a place of timidity whether we're using caution or using boldness. We cannot be timid, which really means to say that we are either using boldness in a more general, large sense, or we're using it in a more focused 
sense, and it is something that needs to be cultivated along large masses and held in check until it's ready to be used. And the higher we get, the more we need to contain it, the more we need to take that boldness that's still in that intensity and aim it more properly and think less of self-sacrifice and more of the prevention, preservation of our men and material. The only time boldness is not a virtue is when it leads to disobedience. That's one addendum. If, if we are too bold to actually listen to our leaders, too bold. No longer virtue. <laughs> because we need to maintain that military integrity, right? And of course, it is facilitated and, and guided by the necessity and the degrees of intensity that are required and the resolution we must show and the intelligence that we must show as well, as much as we can. So I think we have a pretty good conception of what boldness is and how it fits into Clausewitz's understanding of war. So let's move into our interview with Soren and where he will talk to us a little bit about planning, prepping, and going into the game, but also making sure that we go in and win through boldness. So here with us today uh, to discuss these themes of boldness, and before I get my butt whooped against him in 40K, is uh, you know becoming a good friend of mine, Soren. Soren, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a new experience and hopefully a good one. Well, I have uh, experienced your pedigree firsthand at this point, but for our listeners who have perhaps only experienced it secondhand, why don't you let them know what's going on? Um, in this particular case, I've been playing Warhammer for a great many years. I started collecting models right when second edition was ending and learned to play in third. And at this point, I don't even know what edition we're on anymore. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> there's been too many and it seems to change too quickly. Um, during that time, I have been a terrible player, a good player and a terrible player again. It seems to cycle through as I have to relearn what I'm doing every couple of years. Well, you've, you've seemed to have settled on, uh, <laughs> on good player at this point, at least in my opinion. Uh, but you've been playing since like second edition, right? I, third edition was when I truly started playing. But yes, I, I did watch some games during second edition. Um, it has changed so much over the years. I think we've, we're getting to towards something that seems to be a, a little bit more accurate of an actual game rather than what it was early on was so many dice mechanics and so many things that were just reliant on luck. I'm sure a lot of that is because it's becoming more competitive and, and there's a larger scene where people are getting paid and when you actually have like cash prizes, people want it to be consistent as to how you achieve that. Yes, having a, a game that's entirely based on just a, a random role doesn't seem to draw the audience as much as something that requires forethought and strategy and planning ahead for more than the next 30 seconds. Sure, sure. And I mean, it's a great game for it and uh, I'm, I'm glad have joined when I did because I didn't experience some of that stuff. I came into it once it was starting to turn pro, I feel. And so like the 8th edition, the rules were getting more streamlined and then I love ninth, Especially the terrain rules for ninth. Oh! Over the moon. The, the game truly has changed over the last couple of years. Earlier on when I was playing, there were so many things that were dice related or there were so many things where like the population was just smaller mm -hmm. and you just didn't have the variety of options it was oh we have you know five armies that we play and that seems to be about it and as the game has grown the rules have gotten incredibly complicated and then 
it was quite wonderful when they went into you know seventh and eighth edition and cut out so many just superfluous rules that right. weren't really doing anything or they had three rules that did the same thing with minor changes where we are currently seems to be working out very well um I won't say it's balanced. Warhammer is never going to be truly balanced. There's always going to be a power curve, but... But, you know, th those of us who are study students of history, no two teams have ever been equal, <laughs> no. ever. No, no two anything have ever truly been equal. Right. So, I mean, like, obviously they try to balance it the best they can. You don't want to have one army that's completely Tyranids. I mean, sorry, better than everybody else. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Tyranids don't seem to be strong whatsoever. I, I don't know how you could do 20 plus mortal wounds to something per round oh, no. uh yeah, oh, no. Word. but no it, it's, it's it's good that way i think it's good that way because each one plays a little bit different one of the things we've studied on this show is how you know conventional warfare works between two like modestly the same armies between different technology levels between different size we have you know the, the warfare that is happening completely asymmetrically uh, so, again, the, the, the imbalances of Warhammer are honestly kind of accurate. It opinion. is. And they've done a very good job over the years of separating the armies out to make each one of them have their own flavor, right. in a sense. Right. The armies, when when I first started playing, um, Eldar and Guardsmen had the same gun. Hmm. Both had LAS guns? Really? Yep. I still have some old plastic LAS guns for Eldar Guardians. Um you had an option of either a LAS gun that looked very, very similar to a guardsman's LAS gun. Minor artistic differences, of course. But when I bought a box of Guardians for one of my first purchases ever for Warhammer, it came with plastic LAS guns and pewter shrieking catapults. Ugh. And it was a choice between either what every guardsman had or something that was a little bit more special, and I went with something that was more special. Sure? I very much do not regret doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're so different. Like, everything about the different armies is so different. They've diverged in truly wonderful ways to create something that's... It's not a static game of, you know, back and forth with the same units. You're not running into, you know, your own models on the other side of the field. Right. And it... It lends itself more to a, a tactical sense of things that you can try to perform with something that you just couldn't do originally. Right. No, and, and I and I totally dig it. And it's cool to, especially having somebody that has your perspective. I've joined this really, I mean, I've been doing this for several, many years at this point, but I'm, I'm still but a child uh, <laughs> compared to somebody such as yourself. I, I have a couple of friends who have been playing for years longer than I have. One of my very good friends has been playing since... Fully into second edition and has some true horror stories from second edition games of like being tabled on turn one by one weapon. Ooh. Uh, there was a like a, a virus bomb thing that had a chance to like overflow into everything else and just have his entire army gone other than like three or four units on like the first round of the game. Wow. I'm quite happy that those things have been removed. As entertaining as it was to have the option of just bringing the nuke into a fight. <laughs> it, didn't really work for a board game. <laughs> no, no, especially whenever you're trying to do something balanced and longer than 15 seconds. Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> Get this entire board set up. Spend more time setting up than actually playing. <laughs> right, yes. Nuts. Oh, but with all of that, you obviously have have learned, especially with the like you said, the the increase of skill and the, the, like the the steep skill curve. That this so very much. Our last game that you had together, you perfectly like, were you a perfect example. 
of what boldness is supposed to be, at least within what Clausewitz is talking about, because you were very sure. You moved to the center of the board. You were making sure that uh, you were not having any opportunities pass you by, and you were trying to keep me on the defensive. Now I was trying to do the exact same thing, but there was no lack of that boldness. Now, does that come purely from the type of army that you're playing, or...? Each army has its own requirements for victory. In the case of that Necron army that I was fielding, I didn't have any capability to engage you from range consistently. I guess I had a couple of heavier guns that could do some damage to you, mm -hmm. but the majority of that army had to be in close range. And even just looking at it, like statistically, there was no way that I was going to be able to survive firepower from your units. You, your guns were bigger than mine, they were doing more damage, they had just overall your equipment at range was better than mine. Mm -hmm. So the only real choice I had in order to make that a game was to push in on you as quick as I could to bring the melee that I had to play. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, as an objective-based game, if you are stuck in the same little table quarter mm -hmm. for four out of five turns... That means that I control the rest of the battlefield and can dictate the score. I can dictate where things are. It cost me almost my entire army. I think I was down to 10 models at the end of that game. Um, I had a couple of mortals and two characters that were left on the field and everything else was dead. But that was the end of turn five. And you had a 50-point spread on me at that point. At, at that point, I had just maintained the initiative and controlled the field at the expense of my army. Mm -hmm. But this isn't a, a long-term game that I was planning out. I don't need those models back alive for the next game. Sure. In that case, it was, I win if I hold you there. Sure. And, and, and like you said, I mean, there's, there's an element of preservation that would be in normal war that isn't here. Yes. One of the things we learned about in this section is that boldness uh, looks different depending on where you're at in the strata. You know, if you're, if you're a lineman... You know, you're, you're sitting there, you're the, you're the ground pounder who's trying to take the hill. Boldness looks different there than it does for a captain yes. or than it does for a general. All of these things require that initiative. All of them require that courage to act, but it's going to look different. And the, and the further up you go, the less it is about self-sacrifice and the more it is about preservation of your forces. Not so much in what we do because we don't have to worry about the medic wards afterwards or, or trying to regroup the army for another attack. Our dudes aren't actually dead. Yes, I, I don't have to worry about my guys going home after the battle and going back to their civilian jobs and filling in all of those missing gaps. Right. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's exactly a part of the reason why this works so well. That's the perfect, you know, kind of war <laughs> situation. Very much Stalingrad kind of idea, like it, we're going to waste all of our dudes. It makes cause. for a very accurate intellectual exercise for a direct battlefield tactic in... A direct tactic sense but not so much in a strategic sense right i mean like i play imperial knights and we don't have anything like that on the actual battlefield now we do have things that operate in small elite fashions that are heavily mechanized and they can kind of be thought of that way but the tactics is more what we're looking for obviously and and even though we're talking about our models not actually dying and our persons not actually being threatened a lot of the times people look across the table at my knights and they're beaten just by the sight of my knights. They see these big stompy boys, and even though there's no real danger, <laughs> they're intimidated, and they, and it takes away that opera that that uh, they become hesitant, right? But you you didn't. You were you were just right there. You guys are significantly smaller than mine. Like you said, I was killier, but 
it really came down to me looking at it at the start and having to make the decision of if if I'm going to win, I have to go. Sure, sure. And it, it was bold. It also was my only option. If I had sat back and tried to delay anything, I, I would have just been shot and that would have been over. Resolution, then, is, is one of the, like, <laughs> uh, when, uh, the previous section, Klauswitz was talking about the fact that uh, a boldness is seeing a ravine and saying, here, watch me do this, and jumping across it. Right? That's being bold. That is being bold. Being yes. resolute is saying, I'm being chased by a wolf. I'm going to chop, I'm going to cross, jump across this ravine. And the difference there is necessity. Yes. Right? And so you saw it as, as something that was necessary that if, if you let me get the initiative in this way, in terms of being able to take the center and hold the center of the board, and especially since it's an objective-driven game, I, I agree with you, by the way. You made the, <laughs> you made the right call, obviously. You won the game <laughs> points-wise and everything. But it was a smart, it was a smart tactical decision. Yes. Most of these games I found, I mean, yes, there's dice involved. There's a, a random element that is created to simulate an actual battlefield result sure. of you know, a soldier's ability to fire a gun and actually hit something. There's always going to be, you know, outside factors to do that. And that's what the dice are for. Right. But I found as the game has progressed, as the rules have streamlined, as the scenarios have been written to be more even or accessible for, like, strategic, you know, values or tactical, you know, objectives, the game has moved more away from that random element mm -hmm. to... Picking a force that can be used to, you know, achieve your objective. Mm -hmm. The objective on our battlefield is represented by actual little objectives that you have to get onto and hold. And, you know, you have to pick a force that can do that. You also have to pick a force that can survive what's being shot at mm -hmm. and even be able to return that damage. Sure. And the biggest difference that I've seen from people who are very good at this game and people who every once in a while average out a win or, you know, or mediocre or really struggling mm -hmm. is their ability to look at what a unit can do and apply whether or not that is a good fit for their actual objective. Mm -hmm. You can make great fluffy fun armies that are going to lose nine times out of 10, just horrible you know, destruction of but the force, but they look good and they can be really fun. But the units that you're picking aren't able to actually do what you want them to. Sure. You're saying, hey, I've got this giant horde of things that wants to run at them, or I've got these great, like, big units that can just stomp on everything, but being able to apply that unit in the way that you want it to mm -hmm. is drastically different than just saying, it looks cool. Right. <laughs> right, and that's what commanders have had to do all throughout history, too, is say, what do I have to work with, and how do I get the best out of it? You know, if, if, if we're the Taliban, and we're operating against the Soviets... We can't go and face them in open battle. That's no. the, that was the strongest military force in the world at the time. And so if we were to march out there and be like, hey, guys. Let's, let's form a line and yeah, no. trade shots. Yeah, Soviets would have loved that. <laughs> no, they would have been so happy. You know, Abu Makar Naji and, and the other folks like him looked at what they had. They looked at what was available to them and they made it work. Right. And, and they did. And there was a very steep learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the advantages of getting to play out a war game on the table is I don't have to worry about someone not going home. Or if right. They, plan something out poorly right um which has given me far more years if this was an actual thing i would have suffered horribly very early on a great many years of experience to learn yeah and that's that's a huge difference as well like we, we play games we play games we play games we're not actual commanders we <laughs> no. don't actually have to send you know uh letters home to anybody or anything along those lines so but uh you know, speaking of all this boldness and uh 
the, the momentum that we're getting. Let's maybe do our game and we'll check back in when we're done. This is either going to be very great for me or very bad. We'll see by turn two. <laughs> <laughs> so we just got done with this game and Soren just gave me another trouncing. And uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, he's a fantastic player. But uh, it's, uh, your, your, your skill at the game is obvious. <laughs> Eldari are my first army and probably my best army. Um, I, had, I had so many years of just getting destroyed playing Eldar. I had a whole slew of games where I didn't quite have my positioning down. What were coming up on 22 years of playing Eldar? Okay. If I, if I hadn't learned anything, I would probably give up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> you have to learn something. Yes. <laughs> Eldari or Eldar craft world, whatnot, however we want to refer to them, have amazingly strong guns mm -hmm. and some of the weakest armor you can find. And making them work right has been a challenge for a long time. It's Having figured out what to do, I really enjoy doing it. It's a very dynamic play style. It's also a very intensive play style. Sure. Minor mistakes result in huge losses. Yeah. A little bit of a positioning error lets something get too close or it lets you get line of sight on too many things and you just lose a ton of units. It, it's not a play style that I would want to do for protracted like periods of time without rest. Sure, sure. I, I've been tempted several times to try it in a tournament and I know that if I do it for six hours, I'm going to have a headache. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's likely true, and and with something like that, like I, the the term is glass cannon, right? Where yes. a lot of the stuff is is on the the weaker side, toughness wise, but does a lot of damage in terms of uh, just offense. You can get around it with a little bit by bringing wraith units, but you pay for it in a very steep price yeah. in comparison. And honestly, if you bring an all wraith army, you just lose. You don't have many units on the field, sure. and Yes, they may be slightly tougher, but Eldar are usually a one-threat platform for each unit. It's either good at shooting or it's good at melee. You don't get both. Sure. Um, and on the few units that are good at multiple things, you really have to pay for them. Mm -hmm. it, it makes it difficult. And it also, uh, it, it's, it's a, a testament to your boldness. With, with the army, because again, I got these big stompy boys, any of whom is bigger and thicker than anything in your army, but you were still out there moving against me and using your army the way that it's supposed to be used. And I, I mean, you acknowledge the fact that it's, you know, weaker, so like not, not in terms of damage that it can put out. No, the in terms damage of, like, it puts out is phenomenal. But uh, there is absolutely an element of boldness that's required there. Like you said, it's, it's a high risk, high reward army. It's very much about picking the moments to be bold. Um, I, I laid a trap for you when we played. I put a couple of very large, very tempting units out that I knew would be able to take a couple of hits. Yeah. I, I put a Wraith Lord in front of you. I put a second one next to it. And I said, you know, come get these things. They're in clear line of sight. And I was hoping that you would come in after them. Mm -hmm. Because they will die. But they can take that fire for a round, maybe two. Mm -hmm. And... If that's what it takes to get you into the point where I can bring the rest of my army to bear, that's what I had to do. Sure. Um, and then once you pick your time, then you have to go. Hmm. You can't go out a little bit and pull back. If you're going to 
go, it is that moment to be bold. It's that moment to go for everything. Sure. Any time that you hesitate at that point, you just lose your army in sections and there's nothing you can do. Oh, I know all about that. It, it just <laughs> happened. I had a, a timid moment. Klaus Witz would be pissed at me because I had a timid moment in the very first round. I got it and I could have potentially put myself into range for a first round charge with the big knight who's supposed to be doing this thing. And I backed off of it. And I think that that was my first big mistake of the game. I don't know what would have happened. I do know it really would have hurt that fist is so painful and my guys cannot stand up to that kind of damage if it had come in i'm pretty sure i would have killed you immediately after sure but how much damage i would have taken before that i don't know and i think i it would have i believe i would have stood a better chance in there because at least would have made you think about my cast land by the way it's my big artillery unit was gone second turn it, it, it got looked at by these uh, fire prisms and disappeared Linked fire prisms from across the board. But if I had been more bold with my uh, errant and, and kind of gone up there, it may have given you different target consideration. Maybe. I, I can't I, do I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, at that point, it just would have depended on if you were still in melee contact with me. If he wasn't an optional target, I would have still fired back for the castle. And, sure. But if he had been sitting right out there in front, I think I would have had to kill him. As he was, he was farther back and... I figured that you would get the charge off next turn, but he was far enough back that I had a chance to like shoot at some things. I could soften up a couple of other targets and oh, yeah. try to remove some things that were more immediate threats from the board. Sure. And it worked out. It absolutely worked out. You were able to pick your shots. You had no issue with timidity. You had your plan, <laughs> and even though it was a careful plan, even though it involved uh, making sure that you were in the right place at the right time and all that, there was nothing timid about it. No, it, it's very much a... Pick the time and go, and if you don't go, it's over. Yeah. And it was. <laughs> yes, but not for me. I, I told you going in that it was going to be either I'm dead on turn two or you are, and by the end of turn two... It was pretty obvious which one of us was... Uh... I was down about a third of my army, and you were, what, two-thirds of it gone? At least, yeah. yeah no, the first two turns were incredibly bloody, and... It was either going to be me murdering you or you murdering me. However, those melt the shots and the fire prisms and bright lances ended up going through. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it ended in your favor. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that it was the dice rolls that did it. Because, you know, dice rolls are certainly a part of <laughs> they're, this. They're always going to be a part of it. But there's also just playing your army well. If you can minimize how much the dice are going to affect your overall plan, you're going to come out better. If you're relying entirely upon random chance you're not going to win. Well, this is all very much like like more normal war, too, like normal combat. Like, there is a certain amount of boldness required, but one should be cautious about when it's involved. Not timid, but cautious. Uh, and then and then certainly, um, you know, the understanding of luck being something, but not relying on it. One yes. should not rely on it. You're that. always going to have that element of random chance. And you try to minimize how much that random chance is going to come into it. Sure. But it's always going to be there. There's always the chance that your smart bomb just doesn't work. Right. You get a dud. There's always the chance in a Warhammer game that you go to fire that thermal lance and miss with both shots. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does happen. There was that chance that I was going to fire those fire prisms and just whiff. I was trying to minimize it as much as I could, but it's always there. Sure. And 
I fired Bright Lances later on in the game and just I, I missed completely. I tried to use rerolls. I missed completely again. Those things will happen. But mitigating them, like you said, making sure that there's a redundancy there to be like, yes. okay, if I mess up here, I've got this to back me up. And that's, I mean, with the, with the layers of things that you're able to do with the Eldar, with the psychic abilities and the, and the different, like, Exarch abilities and this sort of thing, like, there's a lot of overlap that can occur there that really is, is beneficial to the entirety. Yes. But, again, it, they're, they're wonderful things to have, mm -hmm. but you have to pick when and where to use them. If you go full-on in on something and it doesn't work out for you, that really hurts you have spent your entire turn layering abilities and adding something extra to try to do this mm -hmm. and if that gamble doesn't work out for you you lose so many things well it, it worked out for you this it, game i got i got this game it, it worked out um the last game that i played with my eldar we had like four or five models on the field each at the end for myself and my opponent this one uh, I got lucky a little your favor. bit. <laughs> Far more in your favor. No, and I know part of my issue is that I've been choosing secondaries that are difficult for me to achieve. And like in this one, again, like I, I've been walking away with secondaries that are zero. And that's that's not okay. I should be choosing no. those far better. Secondaries can be hit and miss. When I've been trying to choose mine, I've been trying to choose things that I know I can score at least 10 points on. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Eight and points if, would be fine for me. You see, and if I'm, <laughs> I've been looking at it, and if I can't score at least ten points on it, I'm just not even considering it. Okay. Um, granted, sometimes you aren't going to score those. I've had some games where I just can't. Mm -hmm. But if that secondary isn't at least like feasible as a ten-point secondary, I don't even want to try. Mm -hmm. And there's enough options that you can pick and choose some things. Sure. And sometimes there's always going to be a secondary that's there's no point to it. You look at it once and go, oh, well, my opponent doesn't have a single vehicle on the, ve on the table. Let's <laughs> right. not go vehicle hunting. <laughs> or in your case, your vehicles were all of such a level that there was no way I could score anywhere close to maximum points just because of the of the wounds. And the, and the, yes, uh, you, you could have picked up some for them, but you just wouldn't have picked up enough. No. No, and certainly with the way that everything else was going. Yes. Um, now, there's a couple of... I got a couple of ideas on the secondary... Uh, I know that that's my thing, but it would not have changed the outcome of the game itself, which was overwhelming victory uh, for, for the Eldar. Um, so if you've got somebody who's new, somebody who's, who's maybe just picked up Eldar and is struggling with the glass cannon concept, are there any specific advice that you might give to them? Oh, that one is difficult. Um, Eldar are tough to play. They're a really pretty army. The models are beautiful. They're, some of them are a little older, but the the new sculpts that have been released are just fantastic. And look online for, you know, some modding stuff that people will post pictures of. There's some really beautiful things. Yeah. Eldar right now are in a weird place because their troops, overall their troops are terrible. Rangers are probably the best thing that you can do right now. Guardians are pretty much pointless. Yeah. Um, you never get anywhere out of them what you put in. Um, but... Eldar are all about their elite and fast attack choices. Yeah. It's all about being able to move in really quick and move out really quick. And their elite choices and fast attacks are fantastic for that. So with Eldar, as you're looking at your models, you can get a big gun on pretty much everything. You can get a lot of damage out of everything. But you want to look at the units that you know that you can bring in and engage 
at the time that you want, not the time that your opponent wants. Right. So you're looking at things that are fast. You're looking at ways that you can deploy them um, onto the field and then get surprise attacks out of them. Eldari by themselves are all about that moving in, they're moving out. It's the outflank. It's the battle of maneuver rather than the battle of slogging. If you if you want to go in there with big stompy boys, you play knights, you play space marines, you play the things Death with... Guard. <laughs> yes, Death Guard. You play things with lots of wounds and big armor saves that can just walk down the middle and take the fire. Eldar, when you're picking your army, it needs to be something that's going to be in and out. It's your ability to engage and disengage immediately afterwards. And they do have some battle-focused things that you can do stuff with now where you can fire and move away. Mm -hmm. um, there are restrictions to that, of course. But being able to shoot at something and then immediately walk back behind cover really makes a unit more survivable. Oh, yeah. And yeah it's, a, it's just a very different playstyle. As we were talking about before, asymm asymmetry in warfare is extremely common. And so for me to have a very, you know, not slow, slow, but compared to your list, decently slow and thick guys, I'm going to have to play that differently than, than you are with yours. Yes. Um, we, we can both be good at using our armies, but that's going to look different. No, it, it's a completely different play style. And generally when I talk to someone about new armies for 40k, I tell them the rule of cool. You can, you pick the thing that looks really fun to you and it may not be everything you want it to be, but you can try to make it do what it is. If you're getting into it for tournament play, you play a bunch of games, play proxy games with someone, make little cardboard circle cutouts and write on them what they are so you can try a unit out if that's what it takes in order to figure it out. The models are very expensive and yes. it's a huge commitment of time and energy in order to make something. But try those things out, see how it plays. People have different mindsets on how they want to do things. Some people want to run in really fast and hit stuff. Others want to sit back and snipe and try things out. Play fun games. Don't jump directly into a tournament with a list that you've never tried out before. Mm. It's going to be frustrating for you. It's going to be frustrating for everyone else. Yeah, sure. Um, just go in and play some friendly games and try those things out. And sometimes the army that you think is what you want to play isn't going to work out the way you want it to and you just have to try something different you, there is an army for everyone right you can play any playstyle you want and maybe it's not necessarily the fluff you like the best but if that's the army that feels the most fun when you play who cares about the fluff have fun uh, and, and like you say there's there's uh stuff that will will benefit or um, kind of feed off of different different personalities yes um I certainly enjoyed last edition when I could just sit back in my corner and, <laughs> and shoot people with my ad mech. This isn't that edition. Uh, I've I, still got big metal boys, but they they got a different job. I have now. some Tau sitting back in a corner and firing long range can be really fun. Well, uh, before we go here, do you have any advice uh, for people just in general getting into Warhammer, uh, Wargaming, or fighting Eldar? Eldar, it's all about picking your targets and making sure something stays dead. Yeah. If you shoot at something and it doesn't die, it's going to be gone the next turn and you're going to have another thing right in your face that's going to switch off. Yeah. So it's all about bringing your firepower to bear, killing something, and moving on. Yeah. If that Eldar escapes, there's a pretty good chance you're never going to have a good shot on it again. It's put out there so that it can get its own shots off. If it's been reduced to the point where that's not an effective use of that model, you're never going to see it again on the board. It's just gone. 
Uh, as far as getting into any type of wargaming, YouTube is a great resource to both help you learn the rules and to see what an army looks like. You may not necessarily agree with what people are bringing to play, but it does give you an idea for it. And a lot of these games get expensive as you get into it. So take a look online. See, see how a unit you know, works or, you know, go through someone's battle report and see like what the rules actually are, what, what something actually looks like as it's on the field and then play a test game. As I said, make a cardboard cutout of something and try something out. Play for fun on, you know, a dining room table and see if you like what it feels like. And if that's what you want to get into, go for it. Have fun. That's the whole point of this is to have fun. You know, we absolutely support that. So, uh, Soren, th thank you again. Thank you for the interview, and thank you for the game. Uh, or, I or really enjoyed the game. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I was nervous before it started. I was nervous through most of it, right up until the end. It could have gone either way with minimal difference in movements. Well, I am I'm looking forward to... Uh, continuing that and then perhaps having some more games where I can uh, maybe lose with, with more style. And I got more points than I did last time. So <laughs> If you keep going up in points every time, it's not going to be too long before I'm on the receiving end. So, <laughs> Well, um, let's, let's hope. That, well, not, not for your sake, but I love Honestly, if you bring an army and a strategy that completely destroys me, I would look forward to that game. And I will look it's forward a, to talking about it on the show. <laughs> it would be an opportunity to learn something new and try something different. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you again, Soren. Uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, and the, for the rest of us, we're going to move on to our next installment of the French Revolutionary War. had about a month off from this material, let's go over a quick recap of where we were in our story. Uh, the French had great numbers at Hunshut that were never effectively brought to bear. And that was one of the big contributing factors to that loss, was that uh, these superior numbers, which was one of the big advantages that the French had there, was never truly used. And so that led to a, a fairly ineffective conduct of that particular conflict. Uh, there's also the case that the French may have won bloodlessly in that conflict as well because of the, uh, the threat that they initially posed if they moved around to the line of retreat at any point. You know, they were fighting in the town itself when they were coming into the engagement beforehand. In either case, moving around and threatening that line of retreat would have resulted in, in some movement at the very least. The opposing commanders were not dumb. But they didn't do that because there were these advisors, right? These political advisors, which, uh, I don't know, I always think about them as like the commissars in the Imperial Guard, just sitting there, their bolt pistols primed, being like, sure, sure, act in a way that is less than moving forward for the emperor. Go for it. So those advisors, of course, made uh, Houchard act in a reckless manner uh, from analysis. And, of course, there was a lack of coordination. Houchard was not ready for the job, knew he was not ready for the job, and did not want to take the job. But he was pushed into the job. And you have this massive army across an 18-mile front 
which is huge. That's that's a massive uh, amount of space to have to be able to go back and forth and send messengers to places that no longer exist. And it's rough. It's rough. I mean, it's, it's rough commanding an army of that size to begin with, let alone in a place where it's nigh impossible to communicate, therefore impossible to coordinate. If one side is expecting somebody else to do a thing but never does, and then there's an action that's required but never spoken, like, yeah, it gets messy. It gets very messy. So Hounshut was kind of doomed from the beginning because of these factors. And the ending of it resulted in different things for the various commanders. And kind of strange outcomes for the various commanders as well. The losers, for instance, had much better fates than the winners. Let's, let's talk about it for a second. Uh, the Duke of York, who had been the one actually besieging Dunkirk, it took about 12 months before King George III recalled him to England to live. Which is nice. That's a good way to, that's a good way to leave the war, you know, back at home, living. Old Coburg, you know, that Austrian, uh, uh, Austrian uh, commander over there, who was the victor, by the way, at Neerwinden, he lingered in the, in the fight long after his own people had lost faith in him. Having prince before your name tends to do that. And then you have Houchard, who was victorious, who was executed on the 15th of November, a little over a month after this battle, because he was found to be cowardly, mostly in that he did not pursue his opponents after the battle was over. Now, if we remember what was happening at that time, the army was just in complete disarray. Uh, pieces of it were all over the place and unaccounted for. Like, it would have been stupid to do a full chase at that time. Houchard made a good decision that, that didn't make his army get strung out and hobbled. And he was executed for it. Because, again, they were not impressed in general with his performance there. It wasn't something that they were writing home about in any sort of positive way. So the Austrians at this point are like, okay... We're going to go back to what we know, and that's besieging the abundant amount of French fortresses kind of along that border. So that's where we're at. It's kind of got us caught up to this part in the conflict. So Jourdan, as you can imagine, becomes the next commander of this army, of the French army. And he's not happy about it. He's seen what happened to his predecessor. And his predecessor's predecessor, because remember that uh, Houchard's friend and, and the person that he came after was executed only back in August. And Houchard's uh, executed in November, and then they're like, hey, Jordan, you were wounded in the battle, but here, take over the mantle. You're nowhere near ready for it, but enjoy. And he says, no, absolutely not. Give it to anybody else. Not me. And they said, well, you can refuse the promotion. You'll be arrested tried, you know, cowardice and all that sort of thing. And so Jordan really didn't have a choice. He had to take the position. And he did. Um, and he knew immediately that he had to respond to Coburg. These attacks along the front frontier were weakening morale in the army and in the country itself and putting everybody on edge. And then, of course, there was the political pushing. It was inevitable to anybody in this position. Especially because it was Lazare Carnot himself you know, Committee of Public Safety, was actually traveling with him for a good portion of this. Just the Prince of Sunshine himself. But Jordan, again, knows, for various reasons, that he has to go after Coburg. And Coburg has just started to besiege 
a fortress called Maubouge. 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 Some interesting words you French have that I sound completely barbaric trying to pronounce. The kind of story here was that there had been a larger force in the area that had been bullied into withdrawing into this fortress of Maubouge. Maubouge. Yeah. And... So Coburg is the one who's who's done this. And they kind of trap them in there, and Coburg splits his forces into the siege army and into the army of observation. And both of these armies served the purpose that you can probably assume from the names that they had. The siege army began to set up siege works uh, around the, the fortress, and the army of observation moved into an area where they could see the surrounding area, and, you know, set up pickets, and make sure that they were watching for any approaching forces. Easy enough. Sound policy. And so the siege army again starts putting up these siege works. And within the fortress itself, there was plenty of food, of course. You know, these fortresses were stocked to be able to keep their garrisons uh, over the winter. So there's plenty of food in there. However, there's plenty of food in there for a force that was considerably smaller than the army that was in there. And so half rations became a thing very quickly. Had to be. They did mount sorties. When you're in a siege position like this, sorties are important to keep your opponent like on their toes, to make sure that you're delaying the, the fortifications of their siege networks. All these factors make it a, a very important to launch sorties. And there were several of them. A lot of them, a couple of them went really well, too. Looked like they had some promise, except for a few blunders. And they stopped or they, they failed, they failed to stop construction on these shield, these uh, siege works. So on the 14th of October, these batteries opened fire. And this already demoralized and fearful force, because they're cut off, by the way. Like this, this uh, fortress is uh, fairly far away, it's isolated compared with a lot of the other ones. And so you have to imagine that these guys don't have a whole lot of hope of somebody getting there. Like one of their representatives, there was a, a commander there who was also a representative, uh, Duquesnoy, and he fought his way free. And like he was uh, later kind of accused of being a coward, but he had said that he had done it to kind of prove that it could be done. And I mean, because he, he like, they fought. It wasn't like a, he ran for it when he saw it opening. They like rode out Dragoon style and engaged the enemy. <laughs> and tried to get free. So, I don't know, that doesn't sound like cowardice to me. Not as much. It's not It's not uh, hiding under a table cowardice, at least. So they're in a fairly desperate situation. In fact, one of the commanders says to these, to these soldiers, these tired, these fearful, these hungry soldiers, listen, young men, it takes a lot of work and privation in order to gain the honor to fight and die for your country. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a statement. And I mean, what else are you going to say at that point? Hey guys, I know you're you're young and you're conscripts and you have your whole life ahead of you, but we're going to be blown to pieces in this fortress. So yeah, uh, keep your morale up though. Yeah, enjoy yourselves. No, it's a fairly desperate situation. But thankfully for them, help is on the way. Because when they had heard about this, Jordan had immediately raised a relief force from kind of all over the place, pulled forces in. And again, you have to imagine this may have been political, but also he was a decent commander. Like, he had done well in Honshut, and he, uh, you know, he was doing decently in the role here as well. So he, he brings together this relief force, 
and Koberg knows of its approach, but he is certain of his success. He's so certain that he starts making these like weird statements of like, well, if they get here, I will boil my bottom. That wasn't actually one of them, but just silly, silly stuff. You know, basically just showing his complete contempt for the idea that this ragamuffin French crew could even do anything to his royal Austrian forces. However, in coming into this, Jordan had the uh, luxury of enjoying a two-to-one superiority. That's including the guys in the garrison, which isn't bad. That is not a bad advantage to have. Now, there wasn't coordination with the garrison, but they were still there. And there was the assumption that they'd probably lend a hand here. So Jordan moves in, and on the 15th of October, in the morning, we start to see some, some movement, some action. And everything's moving forward. Jordan has a fairly general assault going. You know, the left is moving up and it's hoping to accomplish some objectives. The right is moving up, hoping to accomplish its objectives. And then in the center, he waits with the kind of the larger force. And when the other two have kind of secured the areas that they're going to, the center is going to move up and kind of uh, bring in the, the fist, the kind of death blow to the army across from it is the plan. But just like all plans, it kind of goes terrible pretty quickly. And so you're, you're, let's look at the right, for instance. The right's advancing up, um, and they're doing pretty well. Those things where they're taking territory, they're taking cities, but they are counterattacked pretty hard by Cav, and they have to kind of fall back to a, a more defensive position. And the same thing happens on the left. They move forward across this, like, ravine and are beaten back with cavalry and infantry cavalry counterattacks, and they have to fall back back behind that ravine. And so the gains that are made early on the left and right flanks don't count for much because they are almost immediately pushed back by very, very savage fighting from the Austrians. So Jordan is, of course, waiting in the center, waiting for the wings of the army to accomplish their goals and kind of get situated. But Carnot, who is there in person, is pressuring him and says, look, they're already forward. Look, they're already there. It's time for the center to go forward. And Jordan's trying to be cautious here, not timid. He's trying to be cautious and make sure that his plan is coming together before he dedicates his main force. Of course, Carnot is all about the glory. And you remember that from the previous two battles we were talking about where these political advisors were kind of running the show in a lot of ways. Their, their insistence, their urging, really influenced what the generals were able to do and, and wanted to do in terms of these folks being able to kind of having a knife to their throats, literally, in the form of the guillotine. But Carnot pressures him. And so they, they, they move forward. And this is, of course, after the initial flank success. And there's a, a heavy fighting in the center, back and forth. You've got some very well-trained units in the Austrians who are doing some serious damage. And they need to fall back once they're like, oh, wait a second, there's an enemy force coming on our left flank that should not be there if our left flank had done what it was supposed to do, which it did not. And so they then had to fall back as well. So the 15th was a lot of hard fighting with very little gain. There was, there was gain. You know, they moved a little bit on the flanks, but there wasn't nearly enough to justify the casualties that were incurred. Now, over this evening, there were a bunch of French deserters that were being picked up by Coburg. And a lot of them were sitting there saying, oh, he's going to be reinforced up to 100,000 men. Like there was all this exaggeration of what was going to happen. Now, whether or not that was, you know, them just sort of spinning tall tales to keep themselves alive, or if it was them actually believing it, or if they were just trying to mess with them, I, I you know, we don't know. 
We don't know. But what we do know is that uh, this kind of got under Koberg's skin. Sure. And he starts kind of uh, shuffling his things around, shuffling his, his troops around to try to make up for this, this larger force that he thinks he's going to need to expect. So this next day, on the 16th of October, Jordan ch changes up his tactics. He's like, okay, the frontal assault didn't work. And it didn't work for the same reason that we have talked about many, many, many times on this show, which is local numeric superiority. This was something that uh, actually in the, you know, the last section when I was talking to Soren, he used very well, which was the local numeric superiority, bringing his forces to bear on smaller sections of mine and kind of chipping away at me, which was smart, very smart. And that's what Jordan was kind of needing to do here, and he recognized it. He's like, okay, that, that full push did not work. They're too well entrenched, and they're, they're way too fierce, way too well trained. That's just not going to work. And so the next idea is to use the left flank, and the center is kind of holding actions, and then the main attack is going to come on the right, and they're moving against the heights at Watignes, which is the, the name of this battle, by the way. I don't think I actually announced that at the beginning. This is the Battle of Watignes, uh, you know, 15th, 16th of October. So, 16th. Um, so the, those heights are commanding. They give a pretty good view for the, you know, the surrounding area and a very good tactical position in terms of the siege line protecting it or attacking it. And so they have been driven back several times. Again, the left and the center are doing holding actions, and they were trying to take this, this area with Tignes, and they're driven back several times in the efforts. But eventually they take the area, and they get a cannon up on those heights, and they're able to kind of protect their own advance at that point and make it so that the, the Austrians need to leave. And so they do. And the French get their first real victory of this particular battle, and, you know, Jourdan entrenches up there because he knows that Coburg is not a bad commander. I mean, he's not a great commander, but he's got some decent forces at his disposal and can occasionally be wily. And of course, there's, there's no knowing if there's another relief force in the area someplace. So Jourdan prepares for what he assumes is going to be a fairly long battle. He entrenches himself on these heights, fairly good defensive position. However, Coburg, remember, is not only being influenced by the, the threat of this larger relief force that might show up, but is also kind of fearing the larger story. Remember, there's like 20,000 dudes like inside the fortress. Coburg only has 20,000. There's 20 on the outside, 20 on the inside. He's incurred some heavy losses himself. You know, he's, it's not a great position. He's not Julius Caesar. It's not going to be a, a situation that works out well for him. And so, fearing this larger sortie, he lifts the siege and retreats. Much to Jordan's surprise. He was expecting a far more protracted, bloody, and potentially losing battle. And to, you know, wake up basically the next day and be like, Oh, they're gone. Well, okay then. So it worked out. Well, sort of. Because, you know, there's some, there's some political stuff that occurs afterwards, as was known for this time. It's, it's a wonder that the French had any officers by the end of this conflict. I'm just, that's, with the rate of executions here, as, oh, spoilers, I think I just gave it away. But, uh, you know, the garrison commander, who had only m launched a few of the sorties initially, but didn't really launch anything of, of any value during the battle itself, he was tried and executed. The uh, commander that was on the left flank that had done so poorly during the battle, he was executed. Jordan was not 
executed. And we're going to go into this a little bit more right now. So Carnot demanded that he advance further and take some, up, some more territory in wake of the retreating Austrian army. But uh, he had used a large portion of his forces to reinforce this area, knowing that it was decently isolated, knowing that it was an area of strategic import. He used a good portion of his forces to reinforce it, and he didn't come with a, a huge amount to begin with. And so that as they moved forward to try to do this, I mean, just numerically speaking, it wasn't going to happen. Like, it would have been a suicide mission, no matter which position he tried to take, because this entire river area was fortified. There was no good fording place where you weren't going to get shot to pieces. And, of course, trying to ford in an area that is not a good fording area or doesn't have bridges is disaster. Absolute disaster. He's not equipped to deal with that. And so he is unable to do so. And he is recalled to Paris, where he stands trial. And you can probably guess how close he was to execution, based on what happened to just about everybody else <laughs> that was around him. And uh, you remember that uh, uh, Dunesquoy guy who had escaped, the Dragoon? Well, he passionately lobbied on the behalf of Jourdan. You know, he had kind of seen the way that the battle had progressed and seen the effort that Jordan had put into a conflict that was very difficult to begin with. And so, I'm assuming mostly because of this, Jordan managed to live. And he achieved a fate that not a whole lot of the French commanders at this time had, where he was just dismissed from the army. Thank you for your service. Bye-bye. So that's pretty special. Like, again, we've, we've been on this subject for a little while now, and... Uh, yeah, he got a huge pass on that one. Good for him, though. I mean, good commander. Nice guy. So this put the, the French into an interesting position. The Austrians had already gone to winter quarters, even though there was still a decent amount of time that could have been used for um, maneuvering, a decent amount of time that could have been used in the field. The, Austrian, the Austrians had chosen not to use it. They already went to winter quarters. And the French were able to, over the course of the winter, pour more and more and more of their conscripts into training. And they'd also been buoyed by this, you know, this, you know, a, a nice victory, breaking the string of, of losses, right? And, may, and, and kind of buoying that French spirit, saying, hey, we can, look at this, look what we managed to accomplish against this, you know, this force that was besieging our own, where well, we came to the rescue, and, and look how noble and brotherly we are kind of use that to infuse that revolutionary zeal. So as the you know, coalition forces were trying to figure out what they were doing, right? You know, the, the Brits didn't really have their heart in the land war anymore. They were far about the blue water strategy, right? And so the fact that the, the protracted land war was continuing was not favorable to them. So they were not happy about that. You know, the Austrians were being commanded by somebody who ought not to have been in command. He was too old. You know, a commander gets to a certain age, and it doesn't matter the, the knowledge or experience or anything they've had. They're just older and, and need to retire. Again, put a prince at the beginning of somebody's name or president at the beginning of somebody's name. It doesn't matter how old they are. They can just keep, you know, making bad decisions. And that's just exactly what was happening here. So that reinforcement, that, that level of um, Replenishment did not happen so much on the other side, but the French were putting themselves into a very, very good position for 1794. And I'm going to be looking through my notes and make sure that we're not missing anything between then. I know it's October right now, and uh, you know that's going to be in a few months. But, uh, but yeah, the French were already putting themselves into a very good position for the following season. And uh, 
yeah, that's where we will pick up when our adventure next continues. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.